The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the hosts and guests as individuals and do not necessarily reflect those of advertisers or sponsors. This show is intended as entertainment and commentary only. The producers strive for verisimilitude, but nothing said on this podcast should be taken as fact by the listener or viewer without performing due diligence. The existence, the physical universe, is basically playful. There is no necessity for it whatsoever. It isn't going anywhere. That is to say, it doesn't have some destination that it ought to arrive at. This is Keep Your Head On, a show by three nerdy nobodies and one nerdy kind of somebody about nothing in particular. Keep Your Head On is brought to you by the Narrow Band Broadcast Network, NBBN, the focus is on you. By PodSquadPDX.com, painless podcasting. And by the kind support of KYHO fans everywhere via Patreon. Patreon, create on your own terms. On this action-packed episode, it's all philosophy all the time. Well, except the parts where the boys talk about blowing out discs, the BG, Saturday Night Fever, Sergio Simpson, Gabe Kaplan, Buckleback Cotter, Robert keeping his clothes on in public, and Old Cow Pie High. But that's just the first half hour. Then it's philosophy, we promise. I'm your ever-bemused announcer, Michael Brumage, and let's get whatever the hell this is started. Here's Andrew, Robert, Dr. Mark, and, well, he keeps showing up, Chris. And hello and welcome back. This is Keep Your Hat on the show where hell even we don't know where we're going to go. I'm Andrew Scott, along with my good friends, Christopher Vacano and Robert Anthony and Dr. Mark C.E. Peterson. How's everybody doing so far? Hey, doing great. <sighs> we do that. It's the same every time. It's crickets and then Chris says, hey, I'm doing great. <laughs> hey, I'm, I, I'm, doing, I'm doing great. Excellent. No, I'm Glad to hear great. it. I try to, I try to leave space for the other guys. Yeah, you try to leave space <laughs> for the other guys, and it's taken up with crickets every time. <laughs> totally doing great. <laughs> well, I'm actually, I'm, I'm a little fried today. Um, um, I've yeah, been doing this. What if? Yeah, I claw my way. Claw your way back to health? Is that it? Yeah, claw my way back to something approaching like being fit. Oh. Um, because I blew out this disc about three years ago, and it's like it, it took until like this spring before I could actually get out and, and get around and stuff. And um, so I've been doing this like about four times a week, gentle jogging. Yeah. Because to call it running would be like a massive exaggeration. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but it's like this was a lot easier when I was like forty. Oh, don't but, even uh, talk to me. Yeah, so I become a, I become like I'm going to turn into one of those angry old men. It's like you kids better exercise. Oh, you mean like me? Constantly yeah, telling everybody, "Oh, together. use it," because man, one day you wake up and it disappears, and your you body get starts your make shit together. Now I yeah, I'm training yeah. for my 80s, baby. I'm I wake up every 80s. morning sounding. You know, my body makes noises now. It just sounds like a desk chair rolling over a sheet of bubble wrap. It's just. It, it, Do you remember Gabe Kaplan doing a routine? Like this is in the 70s. So, uh, he did a routine about. He woke up one day and he realized he was making his father's noises. Yep. Yep. I woke up <laughs> making my father's noises. Yeah. Again, another under another underrated comedian. Gabe Kaplan was when he yeah. was on top of his game, he was yeah. pretty pretty much untouchable. I've been thinking about Flip Wilson lately too. You've been thinking about who? Mr. Cutter. Oh, oh. Oh yeah. Oh, oh, oh. Horshack. 
Horshack. Yeah, Horshack. Black Willow was pretty pretty spectacular. Yeah, too. I actually just read a piece the other day on the Sweat Hogs. Uh, and, oh, uh, really? Well, on, on, on the show. And actually, one yeah. of the things that they brought up that was really interesting to me was when they premiered, remember, this was the days of Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, you know, white picket fences portrayed on television. Mm-hmm. And there were a couple stations, and ABC pushed Welcome Back, Cotter, really hot. They thought it was going to be the next big thing. Somebody there was right. But yeah. there were a couple stations that refused to air it because they were going through school desegregation. Oh, dear. And they thought that it would stir up protest and resentment because it showed a fully integrated class. And right. um they uh, one of the people that was being interviewed for this piece that I was reading was just like, yeah, we just showed it and we didn't point at it. We just showed it for what it was. It was a bunch of people of, of very disparate ethnic backgrounds who were all friends and who are all connected by this thing. And it was no big deal. And it made me step back and have a greater in retrospect, have a greater appreciation for what they were doing. You're right. It was all over the ethnic spectrum, and it was no BFD whatsoever. Uh, and uh, yeah. I went through I went through a period too where when I was working, uh, I was I was working in the factories as a machinist, and my thing would be to come home from swing shift at three thirty in the morning, and it happened to be that I think it was the time where one of our UHF channels in Wisconsin had sure. got had gotten the uh, the reruns of Welcome Back, Cotter. So I watched like uh, an hour of Welcome Back, Cotter between 3.30 and 4.30 in the morning before I crashed out. And yeah, I enjoyed it even more awesome. as an adult than I did as a kid. Uh, yeah, so. our, uh, our local UHF station in Denver uh, sh- for a while was showing Welcome Back, Cotter at like 8 o'clock in the morning. And so I would watch it in the morning as I was getting ready for school, sure. which was, and of course, I, I, you know, then I head off to my little Catholic school and I try to pull some of that sweat hog action just because I thought it was funny and yeah. that did not go well. Uh, yeah. I always tried to model myself after, uh, after the teacher and not the students. That's normally how <laughs> I wound up going. And that made me incredibly popular in middle school. It is hilarious also to remember that this is where John Travolta started. It really mm-hmm. is. You know true. I mean? Yeah. And it's like, whenever I see Travolta, I always go back to Vinnie Barbarino. Yeah. So. The hair. The hair. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, Travolta was interesting in that he and the way I remember it, and of course, links down below, we'll figure this out. But Fonzie uh, on Happy Days and Stallone were kind of modeling themselves off each other because they both were in what wound up being an incubator idea that turned into really what they presented on on happy days and that was the movie the lords of, the lords of flatbush exactly oh, yes. right good score wow, nice boss call, yeah and really that's where they they wanted to bring that edginess into happy days but of course, they they wanted to cover it in saccharin in order to make it palatable for everybody, uh, and that's where they got Henry Winkler from. But mm. that's what Travolta was taking as mm. his model for what wound up being Vinnie Barbarino, 
which mm-hmm. then later, of course, was blown up in Saturday Night Fever. The idea of, uh, you know, an Italian American uh, in in the seventies, New York. Well, well and uh, yeah, the fascination about Saturday Night Fever. The thing that I think makes that movie so so good and so meaningful is it, not the disco music, Doctor Mark. Settle down, Mark. Go in there. Take a pill. Uh, no, Come on. it's it's. It's a wonderful character study of somebody who is a complete nobody in his daytime life. Yeah. And at night, he is the god of the dance floor. Mm-hmm. And, Isn't that all of us? And, and that, <laughs> well, well, this, this, this idea that, that he's leading this double life and, and one is totally unfulfilling and the other is is kind of filling that void yeah but then again as with so many things it didn't age well because we've got the rape scene in uh you know the back the back of the car rape scene in uh saturday night fever however the one good thing that came out of it sorry mark i'm gonna drag you down with me uh the music of the bgs and uh really you know the contemporariness of it now is you've got the latest uh the latest release from the foo fighters is all bgs and <laughs> wow is well wait there was the old bgs right awesome. there's how do you mend a broken heart bgs right. i love those guys oh, the yeah, old bgs, BGs how about original? massachusetts come on yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, bgs yeah. had had 15 20 years worth of oh. musical legacy before them Great they stuff. were yeah, yeah they were absolutely there's huge a, they were a great documentary on hbo yeah that, that oh that yeah talks- that's just a Bee Gees thing and, and really takes yeah. an honest look at, at their career, uh, including the early stuff. And yeah, because the early pop- stuff was more like, it, it kind of sounded like, like Mersey Beat, sort of. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. And, well, and what's, what's interesting is their goal in the early days, they were setting out to uh, become the heir apparents to Led Zeppelin. I mean, yeah, yeah. They, they tried. They, as, they tried to go in that direction too. And they were trying to fill that space, and they realized, uh, you know, there was just no oxygen in that room. Yeah, and smartly, and their producer, their producer actually steered them to disco, and he said, "Look, I can make you guys giants in this area." And, mm-hmm. and, and they were resistant and you know to it. Nobody first. hated the box that the bgs were put into more than the brothers give exactly so oh yeah and and actually really really fought back about being their music being labeled as disco yeah because they didn't see it as disco they understood that and i mean there's there's plenty of places on the interwebs where you can go and you can hear some of the original versions the original demo recordings of Mm -hmm. a lot of things that turned into disco hits um, but you know, uh, Barry and Maurice particularly were phenomenal songwriters. Um, yeah, you know, really, Barry, Barry really could, stuff. yeah, Barry could easily have stepped away from music. He could have survived for the rest of his life comfortably off of his songwriting royalties for other people. Yeah. It's, it's one of the things that I'm actually kind of happy about with modern music and that it's actually harder to pigeonhole somebody today than it was back then because you get more you get more looks inside the process you get more looks into artists lives outside of the studio or outside of the microphone um with people like uh i mean the things that the people that jumped to mind for me are people like uh sturgill simpson and Mm -hmm. um 
the the pigeonholing is something that I'm glad has kind of fallen away because it gives artists more room to do different things. And Sturgill Simpson is a great example of that. In his last two releases were traditional blues blue, bluegrass, but the album yeah. that he did before it, before the pandemic hit, about a year before, The Sound and the Fury, was a straight-ahead rock album that was born off the backs of him going to Japan because he was a huge anime fan and wanting to do an audiovisual story about a a ronin uh a ronin in the modern age and the the film got released on Netflix it's mind blowing it's great the album's great if he were to be successfully pigeonholed we would never have gotten that um, yeah, absolutely. Film? Well, and the, he's, the he's film is called the, Su- "The Sound and the Fury." It's the same name he's, as the album, and he's it is himself as an iconoclast. I oh mean, yeah, he insists uh, on being in, an iconoclast. Yeah, I, I mean, first he took on the 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 very narrow framework of country music, and and just shattered it, and oh and yeah, fearlessly shattered it without apology, uh, and. And he took a lot of heat around Nashville for a long time. Oh, yeah. A lot of it, too, was that he wasn't he, following the rules. Well, and part of the reason why he decided not to follow the rules is because after his first album, which was welcomed, but not it didn't light the world on fire. Uh, when he came out with his second album, Meta Modern Sounds of Country Music, you know, no, he kind of felt like he was going to get dropped. And so he went the same way that Rush did before they released 2112 when they were when Mercury was getting ready to drop them from their label. They went, and well, they you know what, like, if this is if, if, yeah, if this is our last go, let's go out doing exactly what we want, sounding exactly like we sound. And that's the exact same path Sturgill took. And Meta Modern just blew everybody's doors off, expressly because it was so different. It had touchstones <laughs> back to country and bluegrass, but it certainly wasn't a country and bluegrass album, you know. Wow. And then after that, he was just like, ah, cool, I get to do what I want. Oh, by the way, I don't really need a record label anymore. Uh, and and that's you know, one uh, of the things Steve that Earl, I'm... Steve Earle is also like very, same thing. very similar, yeah. He sort of, he sort of paved that Steve road. Oh hell yeah! Bit. And I mean, most of, most of the guys in the country realm, alt country and uh, no depression kind of music, mm-hmm. uh, the guys that I follow all went that path. Yes, uh, Steve Earle, James McMurtry, Tyler oh, Childers, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, uh, and yeah. and uh, and one of my one of my f- I, I don't want to make it sound like one of my favorite things, but it was one of my favorite things of the last couple of years was when we started having this major racial backlash. And uh, everybody was Twitter pating about, you know, black lives, all lives matter, man, and all this bullshit. And uh, a couple artists started to step up and say, no, you know what? Black lives matter is important. People like Sturgill Simpson, people like Chris Stapleton and people. Oh, yeah, yeah, and people in like it. And this happened, if I remember right, this happened in Sturgill's thread. <laughs>
Well, that, the, the cool thing was is I heard this uh, jazz DJ say something as this was all progressing at this time. And, and one of the things that he said was, all lives matter when black lives matter. Exactly right. That's nice. Right? And what I, what I really like was the approach of all lives matter, but right now we're talking about black ones. Yeah. You know, and, and, and I, I can't agree with, with your guy more tie that's really kind of where it is but i was just gonna say it's like it's funny so let's just add one more rhetorical technique here <laughs> i've been telling people when people have said all lives matter to me i go you don't believe that <laughs> oh yeah you only think yours does yeah yeah that goes back to what that's we were talking about last show where yeah, you know, yeah, that yeah right ask them about their freedom <laughs> are you yeah, really yeah. are you free so are you which really is something free? that i i can't wait to do in public Oh, what man. be free keep your clothes yeah. on that's yeah so we'll, we'll do that you know <laughs> or at, at minimum keep your hat on ah there we go and with that we're going to take a quick break we're going to come right back with a very interesting show if you want philosophy we got a buttload of it for you so stay put this is andy that's chris that's ty that's dr mark this is keep your hat on and we'll be right back don't go anywhere Hi, everybody. This is Andrew Scott, the host and producer of the Keep Your Hat On podcast. Look, this pandemic has been really hard on all of us. There's no question. Things were so bad for so long. Everybody locked away, praying to stay healthy, hoping for a solution. And for a while, things started legitimately getting better. But now, just when we were thinking we could get back to some kind of normal, we have the Delta variant, which is much more transmissible, like 60% more. And it makes more people sicker, including young people. We may be through with coronavirus, but coronavirus is sure the hell not through with us. Feeling helpless feels awful but we are not helpless both of the mnra vaccines are highly effective against both the gamma and delta variant especially when it comes to keeping people out of the hospital statistically speaking if you get either mnra shot your chances of getting coronavirus are very very low and if by some unfortunate quirk you do your chances of passing it on are significantly lower. Your chances of having to be hospitalized are even lower, and your chances of dying are nearly zero. Yes, both Pfizer and Moderna are working on variant-specific boosters right now. But honestly, any shot of any kind is better than remaining unprotected. Truth is, the more unvaccinated people we have, the more mutations and variants we'll see. And there's a chance they'll be even worse than what we're dealing with now. You're sick of this, we're sick of this. So do what it takes to help fight it. Do everyone a favor. Keep wearing your mask in public, stay vigilant, and get your damn shot, any shot. That's how we fight this fucking virus for all of us. 
In the U.S., go to vaccines.gov or contact your local health authority worldwide to find out where to get yours today. This has been a public service message from the KYHO team. Welcome back to Keep Your Hat on the Show, where hell even we don't know where we're going to go. I'm Andrew Scott, along with my good friends, Robert Anthony and Christopher Vacano and Dr. Mark Peterson, Ph.D., professor of important things in important (laughs) places. Uh, Now, again, a little bit of backstory. One of the reasons why we are able to feature Dr. Mark Peterson is because he and I have known each other for over 30 years. He was my philosophy professor back when I was starting out in college, my first four years of college at a two-year university back then. I think that's where I was starting out, by the way, that year or the year before. It was the year before. I think you started out in 90, and my first class I took with you was 91. Does that jive? Yeah, you guys raised me. You always think it's the other way around. Yeah, please. well, I just I, I felt that you needed a problem child who was uh, often running with scissors. I remember uh, that part. Yeah, I'm sure you do. And why? Why you stayed friends with me all these years is still a mystery to me. But Andy, I'll just I'll just own up to this. I don't think this violates FERPA legislation. Okay. But I will tell you what I learned from Andy was that Andy was one of these students who actually already knew all the answers ahead of time and felt an urgent need to tell us. And so I'll cop to that. I'll cop to that. Again, again this has nothing ever changes. It was one of the great. It was one of the, it was one. Of, it was a great moment in my early teaching career when I had to pull Andy out after about three weeks of this. <laughs> Talk about horseshack. Simmer oh, down. Simmer um, down. And I remember just saying to Andy, it's like, I said, okay, I know you I know you know all the answers, but you have to let the other children play. And Andy was like, uh, oh, yeah. Oh, actually, uh, okay. I, will, I will give you back what you actually said to me that worked. And oh. that was, there's discussions in class. And then there's discussions we have over cigarettes at your car. Oh, it's, wow! We should we should trademark that, right? Um, you know, and it, that that does bring up something interesting in that there were, and this is probably a little less than it was back in the '90s, where you know the the computer age was just dawning. Mm. Um, and you know, now everybody has the ability to self educate themselves, actually, slightly effectively. But there were so many kids like me, and I started college late. I'd been working in industry and had been working as a sound engineer for many years. I started college when I was like 23 years old. Um, But I'd lived a life where I'd done all this reading, and I was in a small Midwestern town (laughs) that was underserved by education, and getting to college was the first place where I was actually able to yeah. to talk about these ideas, to talk about Plato, to talk about Aristotle, to talk about yeah. people like Marx and and Marxist theory and all this shit that I'd read. So yeah, you put a kid like me in that environment yeah. where somebody like you actually gave me some credence and my head just exploded with, oh my God, I can get this shit out now. And it's the best part about working it's been the best part about working out here in the countryside. Um 
I worked at what used to be called the UW Colleges, which were the extension campuses what, originally. What are they called now? Uh, they no longer exist. The legislature kind of dissolved them. We've all been farmed out to the major four-year campuses. And everything's so, just a satellite, a physical satellite? Uh, yeah, of- so I now work for UW-Milwaukee. Okay. Yeah. Well, at least I've been credentialing you right in the fly-in graphics. I've I been saying that's UW. that's essentially correct. Yeah, okay. I, I, but I went from I went from little university on the prairie to working at a research one. We used to uh, we used to fondly refer to our uh, our little bastion of intellect in, in the hills of West Bend Say as Cow Pie High, oh, yeah. uh, and the reason why is because apocryphally we were all told that the college was built on donated farmland that used to be high pasture uh, for cows, and um, I, I remember. Uh, I was the one that uh, in 1991, I, I went, wait, we don't have a literary magazine here? And um, uh, Pat Roby, I believe, it was either Pat Roby or, no, it was Herman Nibelink, who was... Oh, an, Herm, yeah, Herm, Herm was, was here. phenomenal. That's right. <clears throat> um, yeah. They said, well, you should start one. And so I did. And as far as I know, it exists to this day to this day and um i write yeah exactly and that's just it my one regret is i thought that i was being so clever and so smooth by naming it 400 university drive which was our address and for some reason i just thought that sounded really swank when i found out that at some point in time they changed it over to pyrite i was so fucking jealous at that wordplay, it it my 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 envy exists to this day because it was a touchstone back to calling it cow pie high and pie right. That was pie that right. just that got my dad joke gene all excited. We but, like to say that we like to say that fertile minds begin at cow pie. Right there, you go. That yeah. should have been put up on a sign i will trot out our bona fides now that now that you've trash talked us and and that's that it did turn out that that students who started at us and we're seamlessly transferred every other campus yep uh, students students who start with us have a more likelihood of graduating with a degree than students who start at madison do aha uh-huh. yeah that always kind of chafed them yeah well it, i think it really has to do with the amount of attention that each student was able to yeah. get and the access to the professors at a smaller university like that can't be beat can't be no. beat it's been fun it's been really fun and now just to get people up to speed you're on sabbatical and trying to get some shit writ that has not been writ for a long time is that what's going on oh yeah i got about 10 years worth of uh, of notes and <laughs> stuff that i'm trying to collate I learned this new word to constellate something. Oh, which I, I love that. It's it's a very sexy new kind of scholarly term. But it means you know you sort of you know do the clouds really look like a clown's face? You know, does the Big Dipper really <laughs> look like a dipper? You know, I think that's what I'm going to start calling my studio is my my recording constellation because it is just a bunch of shit scattered around, and it probably yeah. makes sense in some way, shape, or form, but not from where I'm standing. Yeah, so, so I have I have these I have three manuscripts that are that are scattered every place. I'm just trying to bring them into big piles so I can figure out what I actually wrote right now. So well, we're going to be leaning on Doctor Peterson here for a while, that and guy. we're going to have a discussion about something that has been it's been top of mind for me. It's been top of mind for uh, Chris and Ty as well, 
And in this new weird world that we find ourselves in, and I, I think you can take COVID out of the picture, but uh, it's it's been attenuated oh, yeah, by way COVID. beyond COVID. Yeah, but it's been yeah. attenuated by the pandemic as well. I think, and that well, is really brought to the surface. Yeah. yeah, it's that it's this idea of we got these two words that people bandy about. We've got this term ethics, and we've got mm. this term morality, and oh, um. We're going to do a little bit of an examination here about those two words, what they mean, and, and not only what they mean in, a, in an intellectual sense or an academic sense, but what they actually mean in a practical sense. I think yeah. that's where the rubber hits the road for me, um, taking an intellectual idea or an academic concept, and how does it apply to what I'm doing now? How does it apply to whether or not I go pick up my mail or on and on and on? So yeah. at first, and again, everybody feel free to jump in here as you need, but uh, Dr. Mark, talk a little bit about ethics and morality and, and the formal study thereof. Now, this has been going on actually longer than a lot of people. Yeah, there we go. There, I have it here. It's go gone on. on a lot longer than people <laughs> think. The The examination of ethics and morality and their intersection points and their and their their the differences have been happening for like 3000 years um sure. you know and, but really what is ethics what is morality and we're going to run from there with scissors okay so get the scissors out right or mine. i'll get them here somewhere oh, here we go well it's really a hemostat, but we'll have to go with that. I got scissors. <laughs> I got. Oh my god. Uh, <laughs> um, so okay. Why? In Western civilization, it goes back further than this in other places. But in Western civilization, I don't know if this is in in real time or not. But or backwards. Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. Actually, this is one of the things I'm working on. Um, and uh, so nowadays, oh, so here's the thing. So like, let's just look at the words first, right? Mm -hmm. Um. Uh, uh, ethics and morality, they're typically used interchangeably uh, by, you know, regular folks, right? When we're out in the normal universe, these are pretty much the same thing. But there's a technical difference philosophically. So when you start d digging down on them and you want to go, what are we really talking about here? This is sort of where it ends up. Um, there's an, there's a, an easy equation that I use that's a very broad brush, but it works pretty well. And it's that Morality is the term typically we use for um, like social habits, you know, the social, the social norms, right, mm -hmm. that go along that we just inherit and we don't think about too much. But once you start thinking about morality, so if you, had, if you take morality and you add rationality, and by rationality, I always just think ratios. Remember, ratios is in the word. Sure. Right? So rationality is where you work the ratios out to see how things fit together. That's all it hmm. is. I know. Isn't that a nice way to go? Anyway. Yeah, it is. Why haven't you used that on me before? Uh, you must yeah, have come I up with that in the early aughts. I'm smarter now. <laughs> I've had more practice. I've had more practice. And more dummies um, like me to teach. It's, uh, I learn from the students. Don't ever tell anybody that. Uh, so, um, oh, so uh, morality plus rationality equals ethics. So ethics is what you get when you actually think through the morality of things. And see how the pieces fit and don't fit. Because, like, so look, for instance, there's a lot of, you know, when you look at morality, there's people always end up contradicting themselves, right? You've noticed yeah. this, right? Is people sure. will say, well, so I saw one of, the, um, one of the cartoon memes that came up in my Facebook feed this morning 
was the uh, some anti-vaxxer going, my body, my right. And then an abortion rights advocate comes over and goes, mine too. And he turns and says, no, not no, you. No, not you. So this is an example of how more about, you know, sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander, right? Mm-hmm. And that's essentially how you get from, if you just remember that, that's how you get from uh, morality to ethics, right? As you start to notice the contradictions and you take them into account and you figure out what you're doing wrong. Um, so you're so saying morality first and then ethics? I think in normal life, yeah, I think in normal life, we just sort of inherit what we're supposed to believe, right? I don't think we get to, you know, we, you don't ask, uh, five-year-olds don't say, mm-hmm. what, what's my moral stance on this, right? <laughs> five-year-olds just, you know, you inherit what your parents believe. And so, so can I, it's only can after I you start a, thinking about it can that... Can I interject um, a little question here? Yeah. Um, so, I've often thought of... When I, when I think of morality, I immediately associate it with as as being driven by religion, and yeah, a um, lot of times. Sure. And and I'm wondering, is that a crystallization, or is 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 morality is it is it more expansive? Is is it just that religion is sort of the crystallized format in which morality is discussed? I, I don't think there's a chicken or egg thing there. I think if you just if you take any two year old, at some point they're inheriting the mores, right? Of right. their not eels, their family, they're not eels, stuff like that, yeah. right? And some of them could be Baptists, and some of them could be Lutherans, and some of them could be Hindus. It doesn't I make see. any difference, right? And so, a lot of times, where you get your morals from, of course, are your religious upbringings. And of course, if you start looking carefully at religious uh, doctrine, you have a million pieces of con- of contradiction there. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, it seems like morality and ethics come into play whenever you've got. You've got to make a decision between two values that are in conflict. Is that is that a fair assessment? Yeah, that's nice. And and what usually happens is people will stick with like their moral gut instincts, right? And by the way, the fancy name for this is moral intuition. And that's just where you you know you just like that's where people go. Well, you just know what the right thing to do is, right? That thing, which is ironic because most people don't seem to no. notice that. I was just going to anyway. say, in this day and age, no, it's not. It doesn't but happen so usually, like that. You know, we go with our gut instincts as long as we can because that's what's easiest and that's what's been habituated. We've been, we've been, we're in the habit of doing those things, which I'll come back to in a sec. Um, and it's only when confronted with the contradictions present in, in our like gut instincts that people go, oh, wait a sec, okay, let me think about it. And the minute you do that, now you've moved into ethics, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Ty, you know what I mean? Hey, yeah, I was wondering, um, so we were talking about the two-year-old and the five-year-old, right? Mm. Um, and of course, in different cultures, in different oh. nurture states, yeah. right, things turn out differently. Mm-hmm. Is, do we consider some of the nature aspects of that upbringing? I mean, everybody wants oh. to the good thing to please their tribe to uh to be kind i mean babies everybody wants to smile right? yeah i was just going to bring that up Most ty i think that that's a are- good that's a good thing that you're bringing up ty in that there's a lot of scientific evidence to show that if left on their own children will normally infants will normally make the compassionate choice they will choose Absolutely. to share they will choose and, to and be concerned uh, over somebody else's reaction to an environmental stimulus so i think what the question you're bringing up is is actually really valuable yeah so does that nurture or i mean excuse me does that nature that that inboard thing that we're all born with yeah 
immoral? Yeah, are kids so, born with ethics and then they develop morals? So, oh How does dear. That so the deep end of the pool, right? Um, there's an official answer to this, depending on which kinds of ethics we're interested in talking about. And of course, what happened in the last, uh, what year is this now? 20, 20 something, 2021, the last 300 or 400 years, um, the answer is that ethics is about rational choice and rational deliberation uh, and making judgments about when things do and do not have moral, what actions do and do not have moral worth, right? Mm-hmm. Now, so what that means is this natural inclination of people that the psychologists are like all over this stuff now or these days, right? Yeah, that's a, it is and a think, weird intersecting point between oh, philosophy and psychology. Gonna, Oh yeah, they're going to answer these questions about the you know the, the natural instincts that yeah, we have. Yeah, the behavioral psychology side of it. Yeah, because they're collecting the data, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a, there are a bunch of philosophers who are like running scared from that. <laughs> by the way, because we're going to be out of work on on a bunch of these fronts once there's data. Yeah, um, that's my opinion. But there uh, but there's some that don't. So okay, let's go back. Let's go back to Aristotle. This is a good place to start with. This. We'll always go um, back to Aristotle. You know, it's funny, there's a guy named, uh, when I was coming up, there was this guy at the University of Chicago named Mortimer Adler, Morty Adler. And I, I think back now, I think he was one of the very first Bill Moyers interviews I saw on PBS in like mm. 1970, something, six or something. And uh, Dr. Adler wrote this, this really pretty good little book called Aristotle for Everybody. And he was like, he was a complete, oh, he also was one of the guys who was involved in creating the Great Books Project. All right. Yeah, so this yep. guy is like, you know, doom. Okay. But anyway, he, he was Aristotle mad. And I remember thinking how silly that was until about 10 years ago. <laughs> and, and now, and now yeah, everything anyway. old is new again. It comes back around. Okay. Aristotle, who really started to use the word ethics uh, in terms of this question about what's the best way for us to behave. Um, note, notes actually he even says it in, in, in his book. He says that it's related to the word hexis, H E X I S in Greek, which means habit. And so when Aristotle started writing about ethics, what he was really writing about was, I mean, and like stupefyingly commonsensical. So here's what he says uh, he says that. Um, Ethics really really amounts to a combination combination of developing good habits habits for social social interactions uh, and uh, and thinking about it. it. This is so important, it's being said three times. (laughs) I guess. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, it suddenly just resolves itself, so let's press on. Cool. Okay, so he says that there's this, for Aristotle, it's a combination of uh, good habits. Now, so if you think about if you're, if you're think, trying to figure out what's the best way to live, because that's what he was interested in. What's the best yeah. way to live? And this is a very Greek idea, which is what's the best way to, to fulfill your function as a human? What's the most skillful way to do it? What's the most excellent way to do it? If you read um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, Robert all Pierce of that said, stuff, yeah. all of that stuff is Aristotle, essentially. So, you know, the, the function of a thing determines whether you're doing it properly or not, the activity mm-hmm. and so on. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, so Aristotle was pretty, this is like the, the uncommon common sense of Aristotle is that if you have to figure out how to live skillfully or do the, you know, live as well as you can, how do you do that? And the answer is, well, it's, it would be really important to have good habits, first of all, and you have to train children. You can't just, you can't teach children 
you, you know, you have to train them first, and then right. later on in life, they'll figure out whether their training was any good. We all do that. Right? Yeah. And yeah. so he takes this into account, and it's like, it's really good if you have good habits, like growing up, right? Because then that makes your life easier. But you don't know that they're good habits until later on in life, and you can look back and think about it. Yeah. Mm. And there's this great, there's this great line, he, sa- he says, um, as determined by correct reason and i love the word in greek because in greek it's orthos logos Ah. and so logos is sticking the words together in the proper order right Mm -hmm. logo right sticking the words together in the proper order and orthos is a really complicated idea but it's 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 means to straight like orthodontist yeah or orthopedics or yeah and i think I, i don't know enough greek or classics to know the answer to this, but I always suspected that there's this interesting relationship between things being straight and things being true. Mm. Uh, you know, and I think that has to do with Greek geometry. It has. They're all, Pythag- they're all Pythagoreans. Yeah, they were all and, Pythagoreans. And so, um, don't tell the math people this, by the way, because <laughs> we like to claim we're first. Yeah. <laughs> but, but um, uh, yeah, so the straightness of... of uh, putting the words together in the right order. So, you know, th- pr- properly thinking about it. So if you've been given good habits growing up, you know, later on in life, you figure out whether these habits are really good or not. And, um, you know, we all do this in one way or another, right? Um, if, and, and then, uh, Ty, you know, you're asking about, like, the, we have these natural instincts on top of this, right? So there's these natural, some of us are like, I always think of this kid named Steve who uh, was like the shy guy in eighth grade, right? He was like, um, you know, pathologically shy. And he knew this about himself, and it was like a natural disposition, right? And so he knew he had to overcome this. This, is, this was so funny at the time. So for the, for the eighth grade talent show, he decides he's going to play the drums. And we'd always seen this kid as, you know, just, so, you know, wallflower. Quiet, quiet as a mouse yeah. wallflower guy. And he comes in and, um, oh, foot, what was the movie? Um, Napoleon Dynamite. He comes in and he pulls a Napoleon Dynamite. He comes, he shows up, and he's got his drum kit, and it's like this guy plays the drums, and he's wearing a tie-dyed T-shirt and sunglasses. <laughs> Suddenly he's Pigpen, right? And he freaking and he, he he trotted out some some cut some deep cut from Led Zeppelin, and he played along with that sucker, and he killed it. And when wow. he did this show... Five bucks says it was Moby Dick. I don't remember, actually. I don't think I could But it was like, boom, boom. Yeah. Carl Palmer shit all over the place. <laughs> and and um, uh, uh, he, play, he did this. It was a Napoleon Dynamite moment when, right when the curtains opened. Everybody laughed when they saw... By the way, the curtains opened, and they saw him. He walked out slowly to his drum kit. It was just the drum kit on the stage. He walked out to it. People laughed because they saw it was Steve, right? Yeah. And then he sat down and he played, and dude, he Let destroyed the whole yeah. house. Okay, shut so them all really up. Interesting. So this is like a regular thing that happens in people's lives, but there's a really interesting Aristotelian way. How Aristotle? This is what Aristotle's thinking about. There's a, like we all have natural dispositions. So like I think, I think at least three of us here talk too much. I'm pretty sure. I think I think Robert is the only one who has a controlled uh, set of vocal cords. The rest of have us. Have you met me? <laughs> Oh, well, only virtually. Yeah. <laughs> but my instinct is we all talk too much. And so this has been like, you know, I'm glad I got the job I did because it allows me to just try to be who I, who I am. Focus that in a safe would, direction. Yeah, they would, never, they would never tolerate this in real life. So, um, 
So you have these natural inclinations. Some of them can be, we can fine-tune them through rehabituating them, right? You get this? But then how do we know whether that's right or not? And the answer is, at the end of the day, you can't do that as a child. You have to wait till you're old enough to start thinking about yourself and decide whether or not your behaviors are working. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so there's these two components. There's getting good habits, and then there's, there's understanding how to execute those good habits. Can I, can I, can I make sure I'm tracking here? The, yeah. the, the, the definition, well, the determination of, of a good habit is if, if, if you look at things as action and result, action and outcome. Mm-hmm. That, that you need the perspective of the result or the outcome in order to determine if the action was a good choice or not. And, there, and, and that's how you sort of establish good habits is good actions leading to good outcomes. Right. And, and yes. And, and the way Aristotle does that, by the way, so I didn't want to get too deep in the weeds here, but this is a pretty interesting one um, because it, bear, it, it looks like Confucian and Taoist thought. Yeah. And that is that Aristotle points out, he says that a good habit is something that will tend to move you toward the mean between two extremes. Mm-hmm. And so you want to go for, you want to hit the Goldilocks middle course here. Mm-hmm. And um, I'll give you a great example of this, by the way. This is, this is one of the examples he trots out. He says that, oh, and he says that the most, excellent, the most excellent characteristics we can have are these things that tend to hit the middle between two extremes. So one of these, and, oh, and then here's where the problem starts. The translation of the Greek term for an excellent action, the translation is usually virtue. True. Yeah. And virtue mm. is like, I have a real bad problem with it now because it sounds like some 19th century, you know, English set of... Yeah, Ed, of like, Edwardian, Victorian yeah, something kind like of that. Yeah. gender roles but, and things but yeah. like that. Oh, especially, because li- yeah. literally virtue literally means manly, manly things thing. in Latin. Yeah. So like, there's a gender problem here from Kinda. the top, right? But um, if you think virtuoso instead... So what would be a virtuoso move, right? That starts to get at what he's talking about. Okay, so this is a good example, is uh, as a mean between two extremes. He says that um, courage is a middle path, is the, is the, the middle action between uh, too much or too little. So if you have too little courage, you're a coward. And if you have too much courage, you're reckless. And if you translate this into battlefield issues, which he did, what you get is like, what's the most skillful action to have if you're in combat? To be a coward? That's like too much, you know, not enough uh, courage. Yeah, or to be you reckless. Get killed, yeah. right? Right. Or second lieutenants freshly out of West Point in Vietnam. Yeah. <laughs> Boys, we're going to take this hill. The sergeant says, sir, that's a bad idea. Yeah. Right? You, you're, if you have too much, it's, it's reckless. And so you want to hit that middle line um, uh, of being courageous. And, and one of the nice things about this is you can define courage for the Greeks as knowing when to be afraid. And that's a really nice sort of, of way to think about it. Yeah, yeah it almost you, seems like yeah. Cur- courage, courage introduces the idea of judgment, right? Yeah. Is it fair to say that Chris's question and, and, and statement and, and what you just said is describing consequentialism? Not yet. No, we're going to get to yeah. We're going to get to that after the other side of the break. But I hear the class bell ringing right now. Everybody can head out to comments. This is this is keep your hat on. I'm Andrew Scott along with Dr. Mark Peterson, Robert Anthony, and Christopher Vacano, and we will be back in just a minute. On the other side of this break, we're going to get further into the ethical slash moral weeds. Be prepared if you got them right. 
Puffer fish, pass the puffer. Pass the puffer. <sighs> hey, everybody. Michael, your stalwart announcer here, the voice of the Keep Your Hat On podcast. We really hope you're enjoying the shows we put out every month and the bonus goofiness we try and throw in. If you do, we'd really appreciate your support. While we'd love it if you could help us out with a monthly donation by heading over to patreon.com slash nbbn, please don't forget that you can also support us by telling your friends, relatives, the hot Amazon delivery guy, hell your potted fern, about the show, and do the like, click, and subscribe thing. That's free, and it helps us out more than you might suspect. We just want to keep putting something good out into this bananas world at this extra bananas time. And we want you along for the ride. No matter what, thanks so much for audio visualizing. Now, let's get back to the show. And welcome back to Keep Your Hat On, the show where we don't know where we're going to go and neither do you. But we've got a little bit of an idea and we are on a road trip, me, Ty, and Chris, into the deep weeds of the discussion of ethics and morality or the discussion of ethics versus morality with Dr. Mark Peterson, professor of philosophy of the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. And when we... uh, Left last time, we brought up a word that is going to play in this segment, and that is the term consequentialism. And uh, Ty, you you kind of uh, left with a question that got partially answered. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but before we get there, I just want to recap. So when we talk about moral pluralism, right? Uh, okay. We're talking about that middle point, which is what that old... Greek guy was saying, right? Yeah. So yeah. Now, this really—that's great, uh, Ty. Because here's the deal, right? If all of ethics was simply about learning where the sort of the middle point is between extremes in your behavior, right? That's going to vary all over the damn place by culture, right? Yeah. And so, like, I mean, in the United States, let's just—what is it? What does it mean to be Christian in the United States? And so, depending on which kind of Christian you grow up and that'll have a lot to do with your morality, right? Um, if, you look at, um, if you look at Islam, for instance, and we're watching the Taliban take back Afghanistan now, um, their attitudes toward women are very different than the attitudes toward women in Egypt, right? Which is another Islamic country, or Jordan, right, for that yeah. matter. And, and so uh, if we're just left with this question about how do you develop certain habits that accommodate a culture you're in, now we have just cultural relativism. So whatever is good for your culture is always going to be good, right? If we stop there, then it, then there's no way for us to say things like the Taliban's treatment of women is bad, yeah. right? And right. frankly, I'm sorry, you know, this is just me. I want to say that the Taliban's treatment of women is bad. I, I want to second say that. Women. Yeah, no argument yeah. here. Pretty easy, right? I, well, I want to, but now if you if you if you let the, the relativism in the door, then you can't say that. So what? What is it that saves us for Aristotle from just falling into complete relativism, which he gets accused of, by the way? Mm. <laughs> and the answer is, <clears throat> in book six, I'm really tired of saying it. This is one of the whole books I'm writing, actually. is like, people forget that Aristotle wrote book six of the Nicomachean Ethics. And that's where he talks about um, using your, your melon 
to figure out whether what you're doing in real life has contradictions in it and how not to do unskillful things. So you can ask questions like this now. Um, what's better for society, letting every person become, uh, you know, maximize their potential as a human being or uh, stuffing them into socially prescribed boxes? And so we could actually test that. I think we have over the last few thousand years. And it turns kind out, of. yeah, it turns out uh, trying to make sure everybody is able to become who they are fully is good for everybody. Turns yeah. out. Now, that's not something, that's not a, a thing you can say based solely on social habits. Right. right. And it's like, you know, it's like the pushback we're getting on critical race theory right now is that they'll say, but, you know, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution say everybody's created equal. And it's like, well, yeah, that's nice. <laughs> but that's, <laughs> not, that's not what's happening. Three-fifths. Yeah. Uh, Inconvenient yeah. truth. It's, yeah. It's not what's happening in real life. Before um, we head down that path, can, can I ask a question here? Yeah. Um, so, so my understanding, and maybe I've got this wrong, my understanding of, of moral relativism is, is more related to... Related to um, this idea of say you've got a, a, rigid, a rigid sort of moral precept okay. in place, yeah. uh, and that would be your moral absolutism. absolutism. This applies all the time in all cases, everywhere. Yeah, and and to me, moral relativism would be no. This applies in these situations, but it does not apply in these situations. Uh, you have to you have to have a different set of rules, and and. The example I'm, uh, you know, I think there's a wonderful example that that I could I could sort of spell out in this idea, which is um, Star Trek. Uh, oh. What was it? Star Trek Two: Wrath of Khan. Mm -hmm. uh, the needs of the one out, or, or the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one, or the uh, or yeah. the one, or the but, yeah. Um, and and in that particular context you know mm -hmm. it was it was a matter of self sacrifice for the others it was the moral precept projected inward but if you turn that moral pre precept outward mm -hmm. you get a line of thinking that says it's okay to kill a person to save a room full of people well and right. i want to throw something in here that is i feel is salient it's if you'll remember who delivered that line who yeah. gave who gave that line spock spock yeah Mr. Logic. Yeah. So well, I, I, think that, that. I think that that's, yeah, <laughs> I, I just wanted to put that out there. So, yeah. So the relativism, Chris, is this idea that you really, there's no absolute morality. That's essentially what it is. So, so, so absolute precept, precepts just. They don't, there's function. no such thing. And it's all depends on what you feel at the moment. And so a lot of times cultural relativism pins the idea that all morality is simply, by the way, this is the, this is, this is what Nietzsche said that just drove uh the 19th century mad nietzsche went boys isn't all this ethics stuff just personal preference yeah and it's like they just freaked like out kicking an anthill yeah and it they still freak out by the way i've gotten in trouble i i've gotten in a lot of trouble with ethics people over the years there's a whole field in philosophy right who that's all they do is ethics and every time I'm around these people, that's the first thing I ask them. I say, so what do you do with Nietzsche? Yeah. And it's like, is it you just, just start thing? off by kicking him in the shins? Hide him in the yeah, corner. pretty much. Yeah, we well, don't talk know, to him anymore. Yeah. Philosophers can be really vicious with each other. We really play rough when, yeah. when we play yeah, with Yeah, they other. do. We have a bad reputation, well, in I'm fact, as a result of this. Yeah. Go to an APA mm -hmm. dinner. 
Oh, dude. Yeah, you have to learn the weapons of your enemy. That was what I was taught. <laughs> anyway, because it's like, I'm not, I don't take any of this thing seriously enough. Honestly, I was raised too Socratically to believe I actually know the, the answers to everything. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, it's like, I'm pretty sure I don't. I don't. Well, um, and I'm going to drag, I'm going to drag Socrates back into this towards the end. Okay. Well, there are people who do think they know everything. All right. So. The morally relativistic position is that you can't ever establish an app. And here's what they say. You can't establish an absolute moral principle, and therefore there aren't any. And so then it's whatever you want to do at the minute. You can't, you can't make judgments then because there's no basis for judging something to be good or bad. All right. Aristotle says, sure there is. You can figure out when things are done excellently or not. You can figure out whether the, whether the, uh, the ends you've chosen to achieve are this, are you know, fit the means you've chosen to achieve them. And for Aristotle at the end of the day, and this is, Robert, you were asking me before we went on about virtue ethics. And virtue ethics is the word that's used to describe Aristotle. Um, and for Aristotle, I'll give you the definition. For Aristotle, the function of being human is to be happy. Doesn't that sound good? <laughs> and so, on the surface, it's how fab, do do, yeah. How do you do that? And Aristotle says, you have to figure out what it means to be who you are, and then you have to do that skillfully. And this is like, oh. And now you can hear the psychological dimensions that float through that thing, mm -hmm. right? And all the rest of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, I'm going to have to look at the world to understand because how I fit in the world. And like, you know, I live out here in West Bend, which is like not the same as living downtown Toronto or New York or L.A. Or even or Milwaukee, Portland. frankly. yeah, <laughs> mm -hmm. Or even Milwaukee. And so it's like, you know... Um, how do I accommodate my sense of morality to living here? And I have to make all those decisions, right? Okay. That's your sort of Aristotelian notion. Now, um, as, we kick, as we clock ahead, uh, and we're going go to go to the consequential question, we were asking about consequentialism. Um, by the time we get to the late 1700s, a couple of things have happened in Western civilization. Uh, the big one was that Christianity took it over. Yeah. And so... One of the things that happened then, and this is, by the way, this is just something I've been chewing on, so I have no idea if this is true or not, by the way, but I, this fits the, this seems to fit. This is my working hypothesis. Um, Christianity sort of took over Western civilization, and one of the things that happened then is that questions about ethics um, were simply handed over to the Bible and the priests. Yeah. And so the, the questions about the goodness of an action was determined by the authorities in power who were you know, empowered to do that. And specifically, of course, they were speaking on behalf of the authority of the Judeo-Christian God. Yeah. The end. Okay, so uh, there's another interesting line, too. I found this in Aristotle. This is one of the things about reading these old books is it takes forever to, to really get, get all the pieces together. Um, he has this awesome line where he says, now, of course, the reason why you'd want to study ethics is so that you can actually have a better life and have a good life, because otherwise, why would you bother? And it occurred to me at some point that for the Christians, at least, there's nothing you can do to make your life good. That's all in the hands of the Thank, sky god. Thanks, original sin. And, and so you can't make yourself good. And so there's nothing you can do about it. And so one of the things that happens is, for Aristotle, ethics was, and he says this repeatedly, a practical science. It's practical. It has to do with what you can actually do in the world. But after Christianity comes along, there's nothing you can do to make yourself good. So what's left? And the answer is judging, making judgments about oh, moral yeah. actions. Yeah. 
And the 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 uh, the sort of snazzy way I've come to t- to talk about that is privileging theory over practice. Ooh, yeah, pretty snazzy. Yeah. And so what we get with O is like, and this is a perfectly reasonable historical progression. You get Immanuel Kant, boom, the big guy, categorical imperative, up. right? And um, Kant is coming out of the Enlightenment, right? The Enlightenment happens when, they, you know, by the time you get in the early 1800s, people are starting to look at translations of the Bible and going, hmm, you know, humans wrote this. Yeah. Right? So the authority right. starts to trickle away. Kant comes along, uh, uh, metaphysical foundations of morals, right? Metaphysische Anfangsgründe. It was, it was a lot more entertaining to say it that way. It is, isn't it? It's good in German. It always, it's always fun to say stuff in German. Right? It's um, always better in German. <laughs> anyway, philosophy is easier in German, by the way, for those of you tuning in. Because um, the German, the words always say exactly what they mean. There's no ambiguity. Right? No. and It's very German. Yeah, right? Oh, yeah, so, yeah. We have the so most God. efficient form of philosophy in the world. That's right. But we, we keep all the verbs till the end. Don't the mention the war. <laughs> so... So Kant comes up with a theoretical model uh, based on the idea of Kant believed he had elicited u- principles that were universal to morality, not just like practical and relative, but like universal. And the universal principle he came up with was non-consequentialist. So it's like, he actually, I'm going to start with examples, and then I'll, I'll, I'll use the yeah. technical language after this. Okay, so... There's two ways, so once we get to the 19th century, there's sort of two ways you can decide whether things are moral or not. Um, You can look at uh, whether the action itself is right or wrong, right, based on some principle. Mm -hmm. Or you can look at the consequences and see if it it had a good outcome. And that's the consequentialism stuff. So I want to do that second. So Kant, though, Kant said, look, there are just some things that are right or wrong. Well, how would you know what those are? And he goes through a very long argument that took Andy a, a month and a half to read. <laughs> it was a slog. It, yeah, it is. It's a, it's a, you got to get a machete out for that stuff. Oh, wow. But, um, but it's, uh, Kant came up with this thing called the categorical imperative. Which I still What know the hell is that? Own. Well, in English, it's this. And I'll try to, actually, it doesn't, it doesn't help when I translate it into English, but it, it comes down to sort of like the golden rule. A bit. Um, and the idea is that a, an action has moral value if the principle that guided your action can be universal for all other human beings. And so what that meant was that if the rules that you're using to govern your actions right, can be universalizable to everybody, then your action's okay. And so this pins it to the, essentially it's like... Um, What's That's the golden rule again? Hill to climb. <laughs> yeah. Do unto, do unto others. others as you'd have them do unto you. Uh, I've right. already I've already gone under the water like twice. That's I'm, all right. I'm on my yeah. You got your floaty with yeah. you? Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, but it's not it's not it's taken on water too. <laughs> so this is a little tricky because because uh, he pins this stuff to the idea that there are universal categories of reasoning and he uses those ideas that rationality is something that all human beings have. And I'll give you the, the basic, the crux, the crux of the whole argument is, okay. he says that if you've ever noticed, it's possible f- for your reasoning to override your inclinations, right? So, for instance, so this happened, oh, I'll, I'll come back to that example in a minute. No, I'll do it now. Do it now. Um, I was walking to class. This was in, Tor- in Toronto. 
and I'm, and I'm walking to class. I'm actually walking to Kant, a, a seminar on Kant. And it was a snowy day in Toronto, and the snow was piled up all over the place. And I found uh, an, in the snowbank next to the, to the light, there was a, little, a lady's wallet purse, right? No, oh, a clatch kind of thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I opened the sucker up, and I think, oh. And I'm looking for, and of course, I'm a nice person, it turns out, which I'm, I'm really unhappy about someday. Yeah. Anyway, I look inside. What a drag. And it's, there's her driver's license, and her address is on it, and it's like right around the corner. And then I look in, in the wallet, and there's like 200 bucks in there. Yeah. And I'm thinking, mm. you know, I'm, living, I'm getting by on $600 a month in the most expensive city in North America in the 1980s, right? right? And it was like, you know, if I just took the money and put it in the mailbox, that would be fine. You'd st- I've now, still done a good thing. <laughs> see, so the question for me, and it, the worst part is like the philosophy student. It's like, what a fucking nightmare this was. Were you looking for because- cameras going, am I... This is some kind yeah, of fucking they didn't test. Have them then. No, yeah. the cameras were all in here <laughs> already, man. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I'm tossing this up. So it's like what Kant would say is, no, you have a duty to return somebody's purse if you find it. It's yeah, just because yeah. it's the right thing to do. Yeah. I, I'd like to jump in here and and I kind of give a middle finger to Kant, maybe. Uh Feel free. That, that, that you have an enforced duty to me is not a good justification for any action. Uh, that, that if you're just towing the line of social demands, and in that particular oh. situation that you described, I imagine myself in that situation, and I think of it in terms of long-term outcome, uh, short-term outcome and lo- oh, yeah. long-term outcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Short-term outcome feels great. I got 200 bucks in my pocket. I can you know, buy some more Top Ramen. Uh, you know, whatever. Right. Long-term right. outcome, though, is, and I'm capable of reasoning it out in the moment and say, yeah, but I'm going to feel like shit for that for a long time. I'm going to carry that with me. That's going to be a regret. And, and I will carry it with me until I somehow make it right. So yeah. I am going to avoid that long-term consequence by suffering not getting the short-term gain. Right. So now was it, was that's it the Stanford. Was it the Stanford experiment where they gave the kids the cookies and said, "Hey, if you just leave I the cookies, I think it was marshmallow test." Yeah. Oh, marshmallows. That's yeah. right. It was the marshmallows. Yeah. If you oh, leave, if you leave them here, you can leave with three of them, or it was let something. Come, let me come yeah. back to that in a sec, Chris, because you jumped ahead to the next, to the next part of the example. I ate them. <laughs> I bet you did. Yeah. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> I was. I was one of those kids who could oh, wait. wait. Then it's my ass. Okay, but see, Chris, you're that's that that's determining the moral value based on the consequences of the action, right? And not on whether the action itself is required by a sense of duty. Yeah. And so right. Kant Kant falls into this. This is where uh, Robert, you were talking about deontological before, right? Fancy. Mm-hmm. And deontos means duties and obligations, right? So there's there's an ethics based on duties and obligations. And and by the way. This matters because all of the, the theories that we have in America about how things are supposed to work about rights, it's all deontological. That's deontological. Because you have a, I had, does this woman have a right to have her wallet back? And the answer is yeah, right? We'd say yeah. She does. Did I have an obligation to bring it back to her? And the answer is yeah. Now that's, that's to decide in advance of any consequences. And when Kant says that rationality can override your inclinations, he pins everything to that because, you know, it's weirdly true mm-hmm. that. That you can, and my inclination was to keep the money, but rationality was going, you really need to bring it back to her. You should, right? She has a right to this. That's how, that's how, so all that right stuff and duties and obligation stuff, in that case, the actions are like, um, uh, 
are standalones, right? You just know whether it's the right thing to do based on whether you have an obligation to do it and whether there are rights involved. Now, that's deontology. The consequential stuff is exactly what you laid out, which is what are the consequences going to be? And unlike you, unlike you um, I could have kept, kept the money and never felt, and never bad, felt about bad about it. <laughs> <laughs> that's a life and, skill. And then I'm, I'm, having, I'm having this, but then the funny part about this, it still cracks me up, is I'm standing there as a philosophy graduate student having this argument with myself about whether <laughs> I should bring the wallet back. And that was pretty funny. But anyway, of course, I actually um, brought the wallet back. There so you go. Wait, and happy wait, ending. Wait. Oh, what, what is, so going to this maybe middle point way, Yeah. where does the idea of, I have the address. I'm going to go back. I'm going to return the wallet, and let's see whether she rewards that behavior. Uh, that's what I did, and of mm-hmm. course, this is what I did, and she didn't. <laughs> okay, but I think it's interesting, Ty, that you bring up that even in that dynamic, there's kind of a subtext that's running in your head that yeah. is still looking at a yeah. at the potential of a given result and i'm going to put a star in this portion of the show for a future show because in different realms of ethical inquiry some of us have things that inform our actions like karma and that is well, a, a very empathy. different thing or well and empathy which which also uh does that but i tell you what i think that's right we're going to take another quick break right here don't worry we're not done we promise you more philosophy in just a minute this is keep your hat on that's the questioning tie that's the slightly confused chris and that is that is the best mark you can possibly fucking have right now. This is a serious discussion about philosophy, and we're the serious keep your hat on. Don't go anywhere. I might wind up with a fez in just a second. We'll be right back. Beautiful. back for our final segment in this adventure in ethics with the keep your hat on guys i'm andrew scott that's christopher vacano that is robert anthony and this is dr mark peterson and really what we're doing in this segment is we're kind of finding the place where the rubber meets the road uh we really have when we discuss things like ethics and morality we we it's it's a little bit bifurcated in that we've got one side that is looking at ethical and morale and morality questions 
from a place of the greatest good for the greatest amount of people, it certainly wouldn't be morale. Um, <laughs> morale? <laughs> but I then love morale. But then we've got the <laughs> other side of garlic it. Garlic and butter. You're right. Uh, mm. uh, yeah, Ty, you owe me morales. It's almost time. Yeah. It's almost time. But on Why the other side the of this. Why do show about morales? Let's do it about mushrooms. Yeah, there we go. But on the other Yay! Don't yell. Oh God, you don't sense. yell. It hurts my ears, son. The other piece of the greatest greatest good for the greatest number of people with the lowest harm. That's Mushroom. utilitarianism. Or, uh, But on the other side of it, we, we essentially have this idea that morality is a way to shape your behavior in, in, in a grander sense. And yeah, in a kind of absolute sense, actually. exactly. Yeah. In a in a very, yeah. th- it's either this or that. It is a very black and white thing versus yeah. the yeah. other side, which I don't know. You want to call it grayscale, for lack of a better way of describing it. But Mark, um, where where do you wind up going with this this idea that there's really two camps? Yeah. So in real life, in real life, what happens is so when you sort of boil down what people say and do about morality, you, you, nowadays you kind of end up in one of these two places. Either they decide that the moral, the moral value of an action depends on some sense of what's right and wrong, some absolute sense of right and wrong, right? And that's deontological. That comes out of Kant. Mm-hmm. But also John Locke. I mean, America is founded on this, right? We hold some truths to be self-evident. Right? Yeah, we kind of tend to forget him in the writing of things. Oh, yeah. John Locke, yeah. you have to remember, he and he and Jefferson were buddies, man. Yeah, so it's like well, and, right in there. Madison okay. worshipped at the yeah. at the altar of John. Exactly. Locke. Sure. Um, so people either go that way, or they they wander over into utilitarianism, which is all this, you know, well, you know, you work out what what are the odds of of the certain you know consequences, and then you base the morality on how good the consequences were. Okay. Um, what happens in real life is people don't do one of those; they vacillate between them based on you know, whatever serves their interests most. And circumstance. And to uh, whom oh, the morality yeah. is being applied. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Like, and like, if you think about this, it's like, um, I get into this trouble with my friends in, uh, in environmental ethics all the time. The president of Exxon Corporation thinks that they're a moral person, right? Do you know what I mean? Um, they don't care about drilling in the uh, Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. They, you know, to them, you know, they have a right to do it, and so on. So, <clears throat> when people, when it serves your interests, people will pick rights, and when it serves their interests, people will pick consequences. And the irony here, of course, is this just takes us back to the moral relativism Nietzsche was talking about, which was like, people just do what they feel like, and if you feel like doing it more, you know, rights one day, you'll do that, and if you feel like doing, you know. Consequences. Well, moral relativism sounds like amoral. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not amoral. No, no, gravity is amoral. It has You're nothing right. to. There's no morality involved in it yeah. at all. No, it is amoral so relativism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, one of are, many. These are, these are assertions about morality. And and Chris, you were going to come back about something about absolutes. Yeah, yeah. So so yeah. I mean, it seems like the big question or the big the big point of contention here <laughs> uh, that that. All of these guys that we've referenced are wrestling with, and yeah. and we're I think we're wrestling with it. Is yeah. who's the arbiter? Who's the judge? Who 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 sets out? And that there's a specific these- there's a a suspiciously large patch of silence in philosophy when it comes to who is the arbiter. It's really interesting about this. Um, uh, it's perfectly clear in Aristotle who it is, and the answer is it's you. Now you have to be raised right, right? 
and you have to be willing to listen to your own rationality, you know, and you have to have good habits. Um, <clears throat> and if you do all those things, you'll be in pretty good shape. I, when I was in, uh, when I was living in Riga years ago on a sabbatical, um, uh, I got to work with all of these uh, uh, NGO environmental groups, right? And the Swedes, the Swedes, the Swedes had been in there big time. And they'd been spending their money on uh, legislative initiatives to preserve ecosystems and blah, blah, blah. And they got no place with that for about five years. So they pulled all of their money out of that and put all of it into environmental education for children younger than five. Mm, and it's yeah. like, ah, uh, you got to start them young. Now, mm -hmm. later on, the kids will decide whether you know, this is Orwell, right? Or, you know, Huxley, yeah. Brave New World, or whether it really is a good idea, right? There's that. Okay. That, so with Aristotle, you get to, you're, it's you. But what happens after this is with Christianity, of course, the arbiter, and I'm just going to use the word authority, and I would capitalize that. Who's the authority? You know, ethics gets grounded in authority. Authorita! You will respect my authority! Insert Cartman here. I will. And, 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 and it's, oh. and it's hierarchical. It, it, it rolls downward. Well, and also, to, exactly be so. to be fair, I want to point out that it's not all Christianity. You have to contextualize and remember that at the same time, we also had the rise of Islam. And, you know, Islam had Islam had half of the world. It had the other half of the world. And I'm not talking about yeah. the actual globe because we've got all of Central and South I'm America. Saying, you're, no, you're absolutely right. I'm staying right inside of European. Yeah, uh, the European that's country. really the dynamic, because this is um, where this train and school of thought was born from and really came yeah. to fruition. Yeah, it's like and I'm always really careful about this, because when you go to different places, there are like crazy similarities between Aristotle and Confucius, for instance. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, that are nuts, but it's like you got to be really careful about Asia and 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 not treating them as if they're under the same umbrella as the West. And even within Islam, there are similarities to the Christian views on here. So, for instance, oh. in Islam, if we go to Iran, for instance, we will discover, <laughs> or if we go to Saudi Arabia, we will discover who the authority and morality is. And the answer is Allah. Allah, right? The end. Period. It's Yahweh or the highway. There. Yeah. <laughs> right? All peace. Oh, that's a joke. All that's peace be joke. upon him. <clears throat> right. So, but in the Christian West, it's it's uh, it's uh, Jesus's dad yep. and the Pope yep. and the Pope. Now, what happens, of course, as the Enlightenment lands, right? And uh, my take on this was, you know, the Black Death swept through. People were left alive. They thought, man, God really stuck it to us. Maybe yeah. maybe there isn't a God. That smiting just, thing again. They threw this party for a few hundred years, which was the Renaissance, and then we get the Enlightenment. Okay. My sense about what happened, and again, I could be wrong about this, but my sense has always been that when the Enlightenment happened, we were still in the habit of attributing uh, moral judgment to an authority, but we shifted it away from God and put it into human rationality. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, so when, a lot of, when you see a lot of these arguments nowadays, people trash talk rationality all the time as being instrumental. So that means you're just thinking up ways to get what you want, right. in other words, right? Mm. Yeah, satisfying um, your so, appetite. Yeah, rationali yeah. <clears throat> rationalizing. Yeah. Right, rationalizing, good. Yeah. And this is exactly what, what this was exactly, so we get, we, get the, we get Kant cooking up a set of ethical, moral principles based on this absolute standard. You get John Stuart Mill and Jeremy Bentham who cooked up this utilitarian greatest good for the greatest number mm -hmm. consequentialism thing. Um, and by the way, that's, it is a sliding scale of gray. Yeah, you got Jonathan about, Swift in there messing and muddying up the waters <laughs> a little bit. A modest proposal. <laughs> Just a modest but, uh, one. <laughs> 
But we talk about utilitarian calculus, and so it's, it's sort of like you sort of do accounting and number crunching on what the consequences are, right? Mm-hmm. They, okay. There's definitely a calculus that goes on, yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, in both of those cases, there's still an authority, and the authority is human rationality. And it's a specific kind of human rationality. It's a kind of rationality that, they, that, that at the time... They felt was had a kind of an absolute ability to understand universal principles, which is really nice if you're a white guy from northern Europe. They almost did treat it like a standalone entity. Oh yeah, rationality. It's like this. It's 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 it's. I I finally realized it's like it was. They were in the habit of attributing all these the authority to God, and they just shifted the authority to human rationality. Yeah, it was it was essentially their Athena kind of thing. Is that is that expressed by? You know, some particular committee of big brains that college that of cardinals. What, yeah. what is rational or what is, or are we back to Aristotle where it's no? You've got the capacity for your own human rationality. Oh, Chris, 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 you you got it exactly right. It's like yep. uh, there was a there's a committee of big brains, <laughs> and they're called they're called philosophers. <laughs> and this committee of big brains decides what rationality is. Well, okay, this was this sounded great getting into the end of the 19th century. Remember it's like we were in an era where Pope said, remember this, and God said, let there be Newton and all was light. Remember yeah. this stuff? Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh, human reason will guide the way. It's like, yeah, then World War 1 happened. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then and this is exactly where Nietzsche stuck the knife in. Mm-hmm. Because you could say, oh, we're just being rational and it's like you know, when people are rational, they just are using rationality to rationalize things they wanted on the basis of their appetites. I'm just following orders. And that's what, that's what I was going to ask about is back to Aristotle and the happiness. Uh, that seems like that leaves the door wide open to just become... For all kinds of abuse. Like we oh. were talking about oh. in the last episode. Mm-hmm. There's a great line. Let's see if I could just turn to it. It would be awesome if I could just... If I could just like turn, oh my God, look right here and say, wait, boom. This is in at the end of book six. He goes, so could this just be wide open for the appetites to enslave everybody? He was talking about the appetites here and he goes, he goes, in the case of both children and beasts, the natural characteristics, and these are our natural appetites, are present, but they are manifestly harmful in the absence of intellect. Dope. And so here's the deal. Uh, And we all know this from our own lives. Um, our appetites win out all the time. And mm-hmm. I want um, an Oompa Loompa now. Wow, who doesn't? Right? <laughs> right? Come on, they're right there! Is that chocolate in the river? <laughs> <laughs> so Willy Wonka gets us here, doesn't it? So right. um, Yeah, Roald Dahl really did kind of kernelize that yeah, whole well, thing very skillfully. Man, okay. Um, the reality is, though, here's the, and this is the nice thing about Aristotle. Oh, so f- let me do this first. First of all, this idea of reason is this kind of final authority on everything. This is where the postmodernists jump in right after Nietzsche. And they're, the, so postmodernism, the post-modernism is the side. Well, modernism is like Kant and Mill and those guys. And so postmodernism is this view that human rationality is not as reliable as you think it is. Right? Right? Imagine that. (laughs) And uh, Aristotle actually has this great line I've always loved, which is that it is possible to figure out how to do the wrong thing the right way. So like robbing banks, for instance, which is really not a virtuous activity. You could still figure out how to do it. No, but it makes for some great movies. 
Awesome. But he says, that is not, that's not so much moral, moral as it is clever. And he actually does this whole, he does a whole couple of paragraphs on this idea of cleverness. Um, you can tell, actually, in real life when people are behaving badly. You know, that's weird, right? You kind of can tell. Yeah. And you can tell over, and it has to do more with, are they really satisfying their function as a human being? Are they making themselves happy, right, at the expense of everybody else, or are they making themselves happy in the context of the society we live in? Yeah, altruism so, versus hedonism, yeah. Yeah, this starts to get at it. Um, what we found, of course, is that in recent totalitarian regimes, <clears throat> of which there are still many, the authorities have written what is so. And people will cling to those absolutes. I, you know, Chris, I think the thing about absolute morality is it's very comforting, and it requires no thinking. Yeah, it's easy. Yeah, yeah because it takes you important. out of the equation. It yeah, takes right, you, um, and it, it, it absolves you of all responsibility. There, you, you get mm, rid of all your go. responsibilities, and think of that liberation from people. Oh, just throwing it up to the will of the gods is, is, is fantastic. What a great scapegoat yeah. that is. So where does that... I guess one of the things that I want to do as just, and look, we're not purporting that we're giving anybody any real answers in this. This is an exploration oh, and a discussion. More, I and this, listen to me. Yeah, and this exploration and discussion has been going on for 26, 2700 years plus and stuff like that. And frankly, yeah, there's, still there still aren't a whole lot of good answers, okay? But when we look at what's going on in our world today, where we seem, and, and I shared with, uh, and I didn't share it with you guys, I shared it with Mark yesterday. Um, <clears throat> there's a great piece that I'll link below um, regarding why people are so fucking angry right now. It seems like everybody everywhere is angry at everybody else. It's just what you think it is. Yeah, it's, and that's just it. No spoilers, but no spoilers. Um, one network comes out at the bottom. <laughs> um, but really... The way that I live my life is I try to see where I'm making an impact, either on the large scale or the small scale, you know, the, the street view versus the global view. And no matter how many people are watching or listening to us right now, we suddenly, we're, yeah, right, all, all three of you, um, you know, we're, we're a global platform. You can hear us everywhere around the world. Hello to all our listeners and viewers in India who are still sticking with us. It's very interesting. Um, click like. Right. <laughs> click like. Very good, Ty. Um, but where does this, where does the rubber meet the road with this today in our world? Where does the difference between ethics and morality show itself right now? Well, in our politics, which is all about avoiding ethics and imposing morality. Yeah, looking at you, that. Mr. Como. Yeah, yeah. Wow. sorry, that was a little political, but you know what? I feel comfortable with that one right now. <laughs> yeah, what we're seeing, I think, uh, largely, we're seeing this all over the world, is um, imposition of morality and avoidance of any ethical thinking mm -hmm. because it's too hard. And, you know, I, I, just to be a little bit political, the previous president, one of, the, one of his great strengths, I thought, for, as, from a political point of view, was that he gave people permission to misbehave, mm -hmm. and uh, they did. Yeah, and even seems enjoyed, they and, did. And and listen carefully, right? They really liked it, mm -hmm. and <laughs> that tells us a lot about where we are. Um, 
what we're seeing is like I, re- I watched uh, Pray Away by the way on Netflix, which was really ooh heard about that. That's going to be a hard it. watch. Um, maybe harder for you guys probably if you have friends who've actually been through conversion therapy. But I, <sighs> I don't. But it's like these people I keep an eye on. Yeah. But it's like um, the 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 the, uh, the resurgence of these kind of fundamentalist ideas. Look, we're seeing it with the Taliban. We see it with the with the Christian right. And to, right. to be clear, um, for people who don't, you hear the term a lot, but a lot of people don't understand what the term fundamentalism means. Mm-hmm. It means a it means a direct literal interpretation of the the dogma of your spiritual belief. Yeah. So that and, that and means to go back as read with no room for interpretation, which is very ironic to me because, of course, it's all interpretation yeah turns but, out they're all interpreting yeah, yeah. so well and, and and the sacred texts run all and the dogma run run all over the map so yeah again it's contextual and situational so anyways I mark you were saying the through, the fundamentalists yeah. oh yeah well you know fundamentalism is is uh, the imposition of morality over ethics because it, it denies that you can actually think about things and make sense of them right mm-hmm. i mean at the end of the day it's our thought mm-hmm. our own thought process becomes an enemy in that engagement mm-hmm. well, because if you yeah, thought about this stuff it's like you know no no uh, none of the christian fundamentalists that i see lately have read the book of amos for instance <laughs> which goes after capitalism with, yeah. and it's like you know they, they they're very they, everybody cherry picks what they need out of the quran too for instance you know that's another thing that we're seeing so it's like all sacred texts are subject to this and um it's because and I, again by the way this could be my own western centric uh dream factory but you know, we can figure shit out, and um, just because, you know, we can figure out digital watches, right? Um, we miss terms, you, Douglas Adams. Yeah. Yeah. To quote Douglas yeah. Adams. Yeah, but it's, it's like, nifty. people say you can't figure out morality, and this is one of my favorite questions asked in class, is like, is it possible to have knowledge about moral decisions? And the answer is sure. It's just hard, and and it takes time, and it takes experience, and it takes okay, introspection, a willing to be introspective about your right. own behavior. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and that and always makes that. people uncomfortable. <laughs> and see, we're back to we're back to my my our colleagues over in the psych department who are having, we're going to have to figure out why that is. People don't people really hate having to think through the things they actually believe. This is why they killed Socrates. I was just going to say, and that does bring me back to Socrates. And one of the things that always comes up for me is that, in, and this is one of those things that you get with Socrates, once you've read enough Socrates to start reading between the lines, and that is Socrates essentially always tells you, don't trust people, trust yourself. Yeah, and yeah, that is both the greatest freedom and the most pernicious set of fetters there could oh, possibly terrible, right? be yeah. because yeah, then you're to, you're responsible for it all i went i went back to socrates with you guys and and the idea that everything you need to know is is found by looking inward yeah it's available to you whether or not you know it's easy to get to that is an entirely different discussion for an entirely different time but time. we have taken up Plenty of yours, dear listener slash viewer. Oh, man, I feel good. I stuck that landing. It is an Olympic moment here. And we're going to wrap this up. This was a fascinating discussion. Do not for a second think that we're not going to do this shit again. But until next time, everybody, 
This is Keep Your Hat On. I'm Andrew Scott. That's Chris Vacano. That is Robert Anthony. Robert, are you okay, buddy? Everything yeah. in here still feel solid? Didn't all turn to gel? Um, <laughs> talk to me in a few days. Gotcha. And that is Dr. Mark Peterson. Again, wear the hats. Do us a favor, like, click, and subscribe. But until next time, as always, keep your hat on because we may end up miles from here. Take care, everybody. Get your shots, wash your hands, wear your masks, and we'll see you again next time. Bye-bye, everybody. Well, there's a chunk of time you can't get back. From Portland, Oregon, this has been Keep Your Hat On, a big little show about a whole lot of nothing in particular. Keep Your Hat On is a narrowband broadcast network production in association with PodSquadPDX.com. Andrew Scott, executive producer. Robert Anthony and Chris Vacano, associate producers. Our theme music was written and produced by Andrew Scott, along with help from Ron Kajawa. Website design and maintenance by Vacano Creative, Chris Vacano Webmaster. Available at VacanoCreative.com. Audio and video production by Andrew Scott, available at andrewscottmedia.com. Got ideas or comments for the show? Email us at talkback at kyhopodcast.com and don't forget to like, click, and subscribe. On behalf of the boys, I'm your announcer, Michael Brumage. Thanks for listening. Uh, I guess. Talk to me in a few days. NBBN. The Narrowband Broadcast Network. The focus is on you.